And so it continued, as our acquaintance matured into friendship. In Paris, in the country, at theatres, in museums, at luncheons and dinners, rarely did we ever mention fashion. Never did he pressure me to buy, though his vendeurs were never shy in reminding our buying entourage to respect the caution or minimal purchasing requirements for the privilege of attending les collections. In this biography, I was pleased to note that Marie-France Pochner has acknowledged the able staff that Dior assembled for his Maison de Couture, a remarkable feat for a neophyte in the world of big business, which the House of Dior rapidly became. Among them, I should like especially to mention the names of Madame Bricard, who edited the collections, and Jacques Rouet, who became general manager and financial controller, and provided Dior with experienced business counsel without ever intruding into the artistic domain. His contribution to the success of Dior was brilliant. Yvonne Menassien and Eliette Roux were both superb couture salespeople. Roger Vivier, the great shoe designer who headed the shoe salon, and Ted Manteau, the director of Dior Furs, brought immediate authority to two specialised fields of fashion. For a man who had never headed a large business enterprise, Dior, with the aid of Marcel Boussac, put together an extraordinary group of professionals, all of them stars in their own right. Dior died in France on the eve of the opening of the first facsimile reproduction of the Dior boutique created for the Neiman Marcus Quinzaine Française in Dallas. Stanley Marcus, Dallas, Texas, April 1996. Preface. How did I come to write this book? The fact is, my entry into the Dior story was through the side door. It was the spring of 1989. I had just published a biography of the Italian billionaire Gianni Agnelli, a book whose appearance had created considerable buzz. One day, my publisher passed on a proposal unlike any I had ever received before, to act as a ghostwriter for an important French businessman. The idea tempted me. For one thing, the arrangement was to remain a secret, and I love secrets. And the businessman in question was Bernard Arnault, a man everyone in Paris had heard of, but no one really knew. Arnault had recently made the news by buying Christian Dior and also taking over the reins of the prestigious LVMH company, Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy, at the tender age of 40. That had to mean he was brilliant. But as with most people whose rise to the top is meteoric, he was treated less than kindly by the critics. He had stepped on a number of toes, and popular opinion held him to be an unscrupulous corporate raider. Arnaud had set out to write a book in the hope of clarifying the visionary strategies that had brought him to the economic pinnacle in the world of fashion and elegance. He also wanted to explain why he was drawn into the world of luxury and refinement. His two main companies, Christian Dior and Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy, consist of a cluster of businesses with interests in three areas, fashion, with Dior, Christian Lacroix, Givenchy, Kenzo and Céline, and its perfumes, luggage, with Louis Vuitton, and finally champagnes and spirits, with Moet Hennessy. The company's net value is in excess of $20 billion, making it the number one stock on the Paris Exchange. In early summer, I found myself face to face with the man, and we began to work. It was fascinating to hear him talk, for he had that infallible lucidity one finds among people with a clear vision of the future. 
but at the end of the summer, Arnaud suddenly announced that he had given up on the idea of a book. By then, however, I had gotten hooked by the project. Something told me not to let it go. That something became clear several months later. One of the anecdotes Arnaud had told me stayed with me. Why had he bought Dior rather than some other company? He had been handed the company's portfolio while living in the United States, having decided in 1981 to leave France because the presence of communists in the new government, he thought, boded ill for the business climate in his native country. He had set up house in New Rochelle, and one day, needing to buy a bathrobe, he went to a nearby Bloomingdale's in White Plains. The Dior display suddenly made me nostalgic for France. What was before me was so clearly more refined than the other displays, and it stood out in my memory. Later, when I was given the chance to buy Christian Dior, I remembered White Plains and Bloomingdale's. I have no doubt that, unconsciously, it had an effect on me. One evening, I went to a ball at the Chateau de Vaux-le-Vicomte, one of the most magical places in the world. The owners were renting it to Dior Perfumes, which was using it to celebrate the launch of their latest product, Dune. The grounds seemed like paradise, and the chateau shimmered in the light. It was like a recreation of those royal feasts at Versailles, reflected in the fountains and gardens, seemingly inspired by André Le Nôtre himself. Arnaud's story about the Dior display at Bloomingdale's came back to me. For me, this ball was rekindling the beauty and mystery and the unique tradition of French elegance, and Dior, to me, represented that tradition better than any other name. I began writing the next day. The door to Christian Dior was opening before me, and I went through it in search of that magic power Dior had used to create the new look. But how would I go about the task, since I had never met Christian Dior and was not a fashion specialist? In 1987, at Northeast Harbour, I had the privilege of meeting the writer Marguerite Yourcenar. In the course of our conversation, she said something that has stayed with me and encouraged me. Books, she told me, are like a ladder, and other people's ideas are the steps. That is certainly true about this Christian Dior. It is the fruit of countless conversations, several hundred hours' worth, a host of stories, personal accounts, memories and opinions that I've collected, pondered and mulled over at length, before finally attempting to recreate the person Dior was. But this recreation has been a collective endeavour, made possible only by the fact that Christian Dior has remained so very alive in the minds and hearts of those who knew him, that all I had to do was gather the fallen leaves to imagine how the tree must have been. There were days when a conversation with the actor Jean Marais, describing a Sunday in the country with Marlene Dietrich and Jean Cocteau, was all I needed to capture the lightness of being that was present in Dior. I spent a long afternoon with Denise Toile in the little apartment where she lives alone in almost Spartan simplicity, shriveled with age, but presiding with such radiance over photos, letters and sketches done by friends, treasures amassed in the course of a life lived to the utmost. That one afternoon instantly gave me a sense of what it was like to live in the days when it was easy to strike out as an artist, a producer, a couturier, without ever really being concerned about money, certainly not in the way we are now, where everything revolves around it. I realised then, too, that even in the period when he could not afford a square meal, Dior would not have felt like a down-and-out. 
One interview that took me months to secure, as there are those who would prefer to keep their Dior for themselves, led me to the writer Edmond Charroux in her garçonniere at the top of an elegant set of stairs in a house on the left bank, with a decor so alive with references to another era that one could easily imagine the Goncourts dropping in on a regular basis. Madame Charroux gave a brilliant discourse on style, contrasting the overabundant sensual world of Dior to Chanel's minimalistic approach, pointing up the right-wing approach of the former, the bourgeois, as opposed to the left-wing attitude of the latter, the orphan. I listened fascinated to this account of the way in which you can find politics lurking even in fashion. I drink at the Ritz bar with Art Buchwald, with his omniscient pipe and gravelly voice, it was just like a blast from the Paris of the 1950s, and one of the best ways to find instant rejuvenation you could ever get for the price of two glasses of champagne. I could go on listing special moments like these, some of them amusing, others a jumbled mass of memories with a pearl buried somewhere in the middle, but each containing one precious scrap, unlocking new vistas like a newly turned-up card in a game of solitaire. In due course, I also met all those who had worked closely with Dior, Jacques Rouet, with his infallible memory, who ran the business at Dior's side and continued to make it grow for thirty years, and Hervé Duperrier, who was in charge of licensing. Their tales had the same flavour as those told to me by others who lived through the Dior years, all of whom saw that period as the greatest adventure of their lives. This book owes a lot, of course, to Dior's successors on the artistic side, Frédéric Castet, Marc Bohan and Gianfranco Ferré, who creates the collections today.